This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, deviation from the norm will be punished unless it is exploitable. Hello everyone, welcome to Watches of Tomorrow. I am Gapwin and I am joined as always by my good friend Dr. Izix. Hi! And today we watched a really good episode. Yeah, holy smokes. It's one of the more famous ones. It's reported to be uh, William Shatner's favorite episode ever. It's like the first of the like really good kind of proper Star Trek episodes. This is the classic series, but this is like classic Star Trek. Like, the idea that's in people's heads. <laughs> so it took us, what, 20-something episodes to get to this? Yeah, it's and like episode 25 or something like that, right? Yeah, 25 episodes in, and they are starting to figure out what they want to actually do with this show. Hooray! And uh, I think for this episode, they actually, uh, this is the episode where they actually announced where that they'd be actually doing a second season. So I guess it's kind of fitting. Yeah, I think so. And we, we got through the weird stuff. Now now hopefully we're on to the good stuff. So let's keep doing more of this. This episode, of course, is called Devil in the Dark. Like a devil in the dark. I'm, I'm sorry. It's also apparently the name of a horror movie, which made it like difficult to look up stuff for this episode when I was searching. Yeah. The horror movie sounds kind of awful. But. <laughs> then let's not do it. <laughs> this is an episode written by Gene L. Kuhn. He's done a couple episodes already. Yeah, they've done a couple. And when I was looking up the cast interviews around this episode, everyone basically credits him with defining modern Star Trek. Uh, I can believe that. Yeah, Because uh, even, you know, like, as far as like the episodes he's done that we've covered already, he did Arena, which is, you know, got our big Gordon thing going on. Space Seeds, like Khan and Taste of Armageddon, which, you know, I you know, generally liked. And now this one. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's written basically every decent episode, but also the themes and ideology that he brought in is was described in one of the interviews as like they, they would go to planets and shoot anyone they didn't like. <laughs> and then Kuhn came in and was like, well, why are we doing that? Don't they get to be on their own planet? Yeah, yeah, this is this is their home. Why, why, are, we, why are we doing this? Come on, guys. Yeah, so while everyone credits Gene Roddenberry with the, like, creation of the utopian ideal of man's perfect future in space, arguably it's Gene L. Kuhn who gave us the Star Trek ideals that got carried into Next Generation that most of the people of our generation remember. Indeed. So it's sort of like Roddenberry sort of built a framework, but didn't really fill in the details. Like, yeah, it's an ideal future where everything's great. Well, what does that mean? What what does that mean for how we should behave, how we should be as people as well? And Goon's like, you know, hey, I got some ideas here. <laughs> it's It stops being cowboys in space and they actually spend five minutes thinking about what they're doing. Yes. <laughs> Hooray! Let's not spend more than five minutes, though. Don't get carried away. <laughs> We've only got a couple of guest stars of note this episode, even though we have a lot of extras running around. Yes, a whole army of extras, really. Uh, the main extra is Keen Lynch playing Chief Engineer Vandenberg, mm -hmm. or Vanderberg, excuse me. I'm going to mix those up while I read. And, uh, yeah, he, he's kind of known for like playing like cowboys or cops or cops who are also cowboys. <laughs> he played a character called the Lieutenant who apparently was the main character of a series called The Plainclothesman. 
Hmm. So uh, a secret code name. I will never get tired of dumb TV show names from this era. <laughs> They're just the and whatever the main character happens to be. Indeed. And I'm technically, you know, the, the Plains Clothesman was from the 50s, not the 60s, but it's kind of all blends together. The, the other interesting guest actor is actually Janos Horhaska, who plays the alien. Hmm. And they are interesting because they, as a stuntman and acrobat, basically played aliens in a lot of sci-fi series. They specialized in doing like animal acting. They like if you saw a person in a gorilla suit from TV of this time period, it was probably this guy. I guess that might be a, you know, in that case he's sort of defining the trope of, you know, guy in the gorilla suit sort of behaviors as well. So. A little bit. Yeah, and he also made the alien costume in this episode himself from scratch as a project like he he did some spec work for the show and they said if you make an interesting alien costume like we'll rent it from you and you can have the job if i recall they uh you know when they brought brought him in uh you know brought the brought the costume in he like came in wearing it and was and was like this is cool um don't got a script for this we'll make a script about this <laughs> yeah basically the story goes that he brought this in and everyone's like i don't know what this is and coon saw it and was like i'm gonna write a script about this out about this outfit and that's this episode was made <laughs> oh we may as well jump in we spent five minutes on backstory mm -hmm. we've thought about things so we can keep going <laughs> <laughs> we begin in a massive underground complex on the mining planet of jana six mm -hmm. it's a very cool map painting I really like the map paintings in this uh, this episode, uh, though the as far as the special effects when we're, we're zooming in on the planet to start, it does kind of make it look like Mars. So It yeah. does. A group of armed men are setting up guards for an unknown creature that has reportedly killed 50 people. Oh no. Mass murder. The group like leaves a guard and moves on as the person they leave behind expresses his trepidations about being left alone because lots of people have died when they got left alone yeah, but what they have only you know 50 people already dead they're probably a little short on manpower so if they need to cover a lot of territory sorry he is slightly reassured by the fact that the enterprise is on its way but as soon as he is left alone we get a first person view of the monster moving in he screams and then the group comes back to find his body burned to a crisp Oh no. Sometime later, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy have arrived and beamed down to meet Chief Engineer Vanderberg, who's in charge of the mining operation. Kirk interrogates him about this supposed monster, and Vanderberg tells him that the attacks began soon after they opened up a new level of mining activity that is filled with just unbelievably rare resources and minerals. Well, that sounds kind of fantastic, but wait, wait, wait a moment. This, this is a Balrog, isn't it? Yes. It's definitely a Balrog. I guess we shouldn't have delved so deep. After they dug into the new tunnels, the digging equipment started to be melted, and then when they sent men to repair it, they were found dead. Similarly melted. One of the miners reports that he saw the creature and that it's big and shaggy, and he shot it with a phaser, but it didn't have any effect on it. This seems like an ill omen if it's immune to phasers. Being immune to phasers is a thing for... 10 minutes or so yeah kirk asks vanderberg for some maps and spock is fascinated by a large sphere on vanderberg's desk he's told that it's a silicon nodule i first saw that so i've been sick recently i watched a lot of stargate sj sg1 and they have these uh, uh communication devices they're basically the exact same thing as far, as far as props go those weird sphere things that they yeah those were so stupid 
<laughs> well, I have expected when they when they showed up on on, on this episode to like it actually be a communication device for a few moments. It's like, oh, <laughs> just silicon nodules. Okay. <laughs> Vandenberg says that there are millions of these nodules around, and while they're a geological oddity, they aren't really worth anything. Which to me demonstrates that they probably haven't invented the circuit board in this future. Correct. <laughs> Well, maybe it's, you know, they were, they've were they gone beyond silicon at this point, and it's like, yeah, it's all magic crystals now, so it's all That's built. true. Yeah, it's one of them. They either never invented something that uses silicon, or they're so far beyond silicon, we don't know what they're doing. Yeah, we've invented new elements that we now use. It's cool, but it requires this weird material we have to mine, so, yeah. Vanderberg gets kind of insistent that they kill the creature as soon as possible so that they can get back to work mining. There's a lot of, like, we definitely have to kill this thing going on here. It's a danger to our operation. People are dying, and people really need their uh, whatever mineral we're trying to dig up here. McCoy, who's been examining the remains of the dead body, report that the man was not burned, but was corroded. So this corrosion, I like that song. Anyway, go on. It's like being dipped in a large vat of super strong acid. Spock, who was examining the tunnel maps, calculated that given where all of the attacks happened, the creature must be incredibly fast. It's just sort of zipping around. We basically now have established that we have a super fast creature who can't be hurt by phasers and spits acid. So in other words, we should run away. Should run, but they don't because no reason really well they have to make money you know this is a mining operation and they uh they, they talk about like you know it's like yeah we're gonna get paid for you know a, a good deal for this stuff so it's, a, it's all capitalism coming back at us again it is they they are vital the mining strip mining this planet is vital to the federation yeah. spock reports that the ship can detect no life forms other than the humans that they know are there at least not life as we know it. I'm suddenly having a flashback to a song about Star Trek. Yeah, I had the Sir Mix-a-Lot thing stuck in my head, too. <laughs> like, all freaking week. This is its life, Jim. But not, not. <laughs> He wonders if they can force the creature to appear, and Vandenberg says that if they do that, people will die. We cut to a person dying. Well, I guess people are dying anyway, so let's go and do this thing. <laughs> the guard who was outside of the reactor room is burned, and then we see that the creature has burned a hole in the reactor door right before alarms in the office start to sound. Oh no, the, the creature's sabotaging the, uh, the reactor, and it's, it's going to make everything explode in the next ten minutes, isn't it? They discover the reactor pump has been taken. Oh. Not melted. Taken. Well, that's a little weird. This is too old of equipment for them to have a replacement part, and the reactor is going to blow up. Yeah, it's going to explode, but not as quickly as I feared. Well, Kirk calls Scotty to do some magic engineering stuff, and he rigs up a makeshift pump that will give them a few days. Because Scotty's a wizard. Scotty is the only character on this show that's gotten consistent characterization at this point. And it's basically, I am the magic engineer man. I am the most competent one here, and that's cool. But let me work. I've got stuff yeah, to do. Yeah, <laughs> they do that. Every time something goes wrong and they bring in Scotty, it's like, well, Scotty's the only one on the ship who's got a brain, so he can fix this. Hooray! Spock states that the pump was not taken by accident, but is a deliberate attempt to push the colonists off of the planet. However, they do not make a leap that the creature might be intelligent. Come on, guys, it's so obvious. <laughs> yeah, they're just like, they took it. But, you know, later will be a surprise that it's intelligent. Oh. Spock, <laughs> out of nowhere, kind of begins to speculate that even though all life as we know is based on a combination of carbon, 
there could theoretically exist a life form based on silicon. And we're not talking about robots either. McCoy, who is apparently still not tired of being wrong, says that's crazy. Fantasy. It's absurd. But Kirk goes with the idea and thinks that that might explain why the phasers didn't work on the creature, because it would have natural armor plating and live in deep rocky caves. It's kind of kind of resistant to just things that eat you up a little bit. We've got to get our, our magical phaser twos. Yeah, they, they reveal that the miners have only been using phaser one. So they arm the landing party with phaser two. And adjust them so that they work on silicon. I recall this is the only time there's ever a, dis- a difference between the two types of phasers that's ever mentioned, so... In this series, later on, you do get, like, like they offhandedly mention, like, type 1 phaser, type 2 phaser, oh, yeah. type whatever phaser. But p- putting type on it makes it sound way less stupid. Yes. Like, type 2 phaser sounds cool and technical. Phaser 2 sounds like you didn't come up with a name. Well, it almost uh, sort of implies that it's, like, a total redesign. Like, this is a, the basic phaser, but this one's based on a different sort of technology that does basically the same thing. Well, interestingly, based on the toys that they came out with a while ago, which actually were good enough that one of them was used in an episode of Enterprise. Nice. <laughs> uh, the hand phaser one is some sort of power pack or something that slots into the gun-looking phaser two. Huh. So the phaser two hand weapon that looks like a pistol seems to be implied to be some sort of amplifier or something for the little hand phasers so little hand phasers are sort of like you know uh i just need to like cut some rock or something like that it's not going to do much damage and maybe stun someone i guess but then phaser two's like we're going to turn that up spock reveals that also in his weird speculation he believes there may be a connection between the silicon orb and the creature but he is not prepared to let us in on this insight yet i know what he's thinking but i'm not going to spoil it (laughs) i know we were kind of when we were watching this it's like is is that is that really where they're going because that was my first thought but (laughs) is that really where they're going with this Well, I think to a certain degree, Spock's kind of demonstrating that McCoy just is completely out to lunch because it's so obvious. (laughs) Yeah. The security team beams down and they go into the tunnels to hunt the creature. Spock adjusts his tricorder to detect silicon and finds a life form that they give chase to. Now, I get that there would be like a bit of moving silicon, but that's like 90% of what rocks are made of. Yeah, there's a lot of silicon in the uh, in rock in general, you know, on Earth, other planets. You know, it's it's kind of one of those really abundant uh, uh, materials in the universe. But okay, fine. He's found the moving bit, so they follow that. We see one of the security members scream as he is killed by the creature. Oh no, our red shirt. Kirk and Spock arrive seconds later to discover a large, recently burned tunnel. They turn around and see Pizza the Hut. <gasps> Pizza the Hut. I mean, this this is a neat creature design overall, but the first reveals of it when they show the thing, like it, it's it's a piece of pizza. It's <laughs> <Kinda>. like <laughs> black with these weird red splotchy bits on it. I, I, it's not shaggy either. They describe it a couple times as being shaggy. Uh, I, I guess there is sort of like a, on the uh, the edge of the underside some like tendrils or furry bits or something like that but it's yeah it's mostly hidden they fire at the creature and it runs off into another tunnel vanishing around a corner 
Even though the creature has escaped, they did manage to wound it and knock part of its armor off, which is now on the floor. I guess we got a souvenir. Uh, let's go put it in the trophy case. Spock examines it and reports that it seems to be made of some sort of asbestos. Well, um... Don't breathe it in. Which also, I was just looking this up. Asbestos is a silicate mineral. So good job. Yeah. So hooray, they've done some accuracy. It's also deadly, deadly poison. After summarizing what we know about the creature again for the audience who wasn't paying attention, Spock finds that there are just too many of these tunnels for it to be only one creature, but they've only found one, so perhaps it's the last of its species situation. This sounds familiar. So wait, wait, we got we got an endangered species. Um, should we be calling the EPA here? Uh... Or are we remembering the buffalo again? He says that if they killed it, it would be a crime to science. But Kirk just has his bloodlust thing going again. I gotta be uh, obstinate and we have to go kill things now. Let's go murder. Back with the troops, Kirk lays out a plan to hunt down the now wounded and therefore more dangerous creature. Spock tells the security team that they could try to surround and capture it, but Kirk immediately goes, No, we're gonna kill the thing. It's dead. Death or nothing. It dies or we all die. Pick one, guys. Then do it. When the security team leaves, he chastises Spock for not wanting to kill it. And then they have a very weird and pointless argument for five minutes. Yep. <laughs> for some reason, Kirk doesn't want Spock to come with them, but Spock says that it doesn't make any sense for him not to come with them, and then he quotes the odds of how unlikely it is for them both to get killed. There was absolutely no point to this because they both just go off and exploit the tunnels together. Well, I'd actually argue that this interaction actually kind of helps uh, calms Kirk down because Spock's almost seems like he's you know joking with him in a sort of very logical sort of way you know it's like the odds of me being you know killed are you know two thousand to one or something like that and Kirk's like okay kind of a smirk like i'll let you come (laughs) it's okay it's a good characterization thing i see why the why you get the like kirk spock dynamic as we move forward it's a weird like three minute sort of comedy routine in the middle of their action beats scotty gives us the good old ticking clock again because their new reactor thing has just failed and they've got about 10 hours before they blow up so i guess we gotta evacuate everyone before then otherwise we all die yeah except everyone's not leaving (laughs) and kirk's okay with it this time because now they're in real actual danger instead of last time when they were in absolutely no danger good work kirk (laughs) yeah all of the miners want to come along and beat the thing to death with sticks i guess and it's it's kind of hilarious the thing is like resistant to you guys is like normal phasers and you're going to use clubs yep okay um have a nice funeral (laughs) in the tunnels kirk and spock find a branching path and separate one going one way and one going the other kirk finds a room that's filled with the silicon balls and spock tells him to be very very careful not to damage any of them spock remembers what he thought about earlier and kirk maybe doesn't realize still we're still not being told yeah (laughs) soon after this there's a rock slide and kirk is now cut off from spock uh-oh. Spock continues on to try to find a way around, but they continue communicating on the communicators. Kirk suddenly finds himself face-to-face with pizza. <gasps> oh no! Kirk, you're gonna have a delicious dinner tonight! All of a sudden, Spock now really wants to kill the thing, but Kirk is the one that says that the creature's not being, you know, aggressive, so maybe they shouldn't kill it. And it's not attacking him on sight. It seems to be holding back. Yeah, they have a completely unexplained switch of of philosophical positions out of nowhere well maybe in this particular situation spock's actually concerned for his friend and is 
trying to hide that like oh i'm just being logical now and uh, it does seem like i did kind of get the like i'm worried about you getting killed specifically mm-hmm. what i didn't get is why kirk has all of a sudden completely reversed his position also oh well, maybe you know kirk you know initial hesitation was like well i'm going to have maybe one shot in it if it doesn't work oh it's not actually moving at me huh mm. let me think about this for a moment holy smokes doesn't just want to murder people Kirk tries to hold a conversation with the creature, but that doesn't work. And Spock finds his way to him, and now the pair kind of decide that they should attempt a Vulcan mind meld to communicate with the thing. Yeah, this might work, if it has a mind. Yes, so Spock kind of reaches out with his mind meld and then screams in complete agony and goes, Pain, it's just in pain. We did, you know, phaser off a portion of it, so understandable. He reveals, though, that this creature is intelligent and called a Horta. The Horta then crawls onto a rock and burns the words No Kill I into the rock. It's very good at writing, apparently. Yeah, very good at writing and carving with its acid stuff. For a minute, they're confused about whether this means they shouldn't kill it or it's not going to kill them. Probably both, but yeah, you know. Well, let's just go with both. Maybe it's sort of a the has a certain mental sort of structure where if something is something applicable to everyone present, it'll just use I. Maybe, or maybe it like just learned English three seconds ago. Also true. <laughs> yeah, Spock says that it probably gained knowledge of them through their brief mind-to-mind contact, but now Spock has to go deeper with physical contact. So you gotta touch this thing that, like, secretes acid everywhere. Yep. Good luck! While Spock tries that, Kirk calls down McCoy. Spock mind melds with the thing again. And outside, we see one of the security officers has, like, found the tunnel. And Vandenberg and the rest of the mining crew are there. Kirk orders that they do not, under any circumstances, allow anyone to enter except for McCoy when he comes down. So all you thugs, like, don't come rushing in here. Uh, We're doing something. Spock, who's now deep in a mind meld state thing, keeps yelling about how thousands have been murdered in the Chamber of the Ages and the Altar of Tomorrow. And, uh, you know, murderers and, uh, you know, Infinity and struck back against the monsters. And then McCoy's here. Oh, 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 yes. McCoy gets here and Kirk tells him to heal the creature's wounds. And McCoy goes, what now? (laughs) Like, seriously, Kirk, what are you doing? I'm a a doctor, not a bricklayer. (laughs) I would have gone with, I'm a doctor, not a geologist, but, you know. But, uh, I, th- I think they, they were uh, foreshadowing a little bit later in the script here, so. Yeah. Kirk's very insistent that McCoy just do his freaking job that he's been ordered to do. Spock continues to communicate with the Horta that they're trying to help, and she tells Kirk to go to the Chamber of Ages and cry for the children and points him toward a t- new tunnel. Well, okay, I guess we're going to go cry for the children and... Well, that will solve something, I guess. Kirk finds a room filled with broken silicon balls, and McCoy orders something to be beamed down from the ship. Kirk soon returns from the tunnel with a broken sphere and the pump thing they were looking for, and Spock tells him that all of these silicon nodules are actually eggs that are about to hatch. Surprise! The obvious thing was obvious. (laughs) I know. It's like we couldn't have seen that coming. When the mining operations dug down deeper, they accidentally destroyed thousands and thousands of these eggs. So, uh, perhaps the miners are the monsters the whole time. Outside of the tunnel, Vanderberg and his men overpower the guards and rush in to beat the horde to death with sticks. 
Oh no, uh, they're still going to be not very effective. McCoy is applying something to the Horta when the miners get there, and Kirk pulls his phaser on them and explains that the Horta is just peaceful and intelligent, and they killed a lot of its babies. You know, you know, fifty men for thousands of children. Uh, there's some sort of equivalence there? Question mark. Maybe. Spock goes to on to tell us about how the Horta lived on this planet all alone and were super, super peaceful and didn't want to hurt anyone, being that they lived alone, I guess. We'll talk about that in a second. There's some good biology in here. Yeah, you know, the, the, he sort of runs down that, you know, like every 50,000 years they have sort of, uh, like most of them die off, but there's like one that sort of like takes care of all the eggs for the next generation. And then they do it all over again. Yep. But this generation, they're trying to kill the one who's you know, looking after everything. Vandenberg is upset about how they you know, unintentionally killed a bunch of things, but he's skeptical about sharing their planet with thousands of these things once the eggs hatch. I mean, you know, after all, they do need to be getting their mining on. They need those resources to uh, sell to the Federation and all that, right? Kirk tells him that they actually could be really useful because the Horta are naturally born tunnel diggers and they can dig tunnels faster than any human. I guess that's useful then. Um, so what are the Horta going to get in exchange for this? Not being murdered, apparently. Oh. He also gives them the pump that they found in the egg chamber so they can fix the reactor. Hey, we're not going to explode. <laughs> Spock is upset because even though the miners are okay with the Horta being there, it's really, really injured and might die. McCoy, what, what, how's that going? Yeah, McCoy is all full of himself now because he figured out that he could just slather concrete on it. I guess that works. Shrug? Says it's mostly silicon, so he just, you know, plastered it onto the wound. Like, you know, we shove carbon on stuff when we're injured. <laughs> it's like a, Here, have some charcoal. Just fill up that wound. It's been great. So everyone knows if you get a cut, you rub, you rub a charcoal briquette all over it. Uh, McCoy is sort of standing there with his hands up covered in uh, the, the concrete there it's, it's kind of a hilarious uh, uh, picture he's like yeah you know, I guess I have a bricklayer sort of expression on his face <laughs> <laughs> Kirk asks if Spock would mind telling the Horta how it can now help out the miners and Spock says that the Horta will probably agree because it has a very logical mind and that after hanging out with humans he finds that quite refreshing good on you Spock Finding a, find a compatriot. Back on the ship, Vandenberg calls to tell them all that the eggs are hatching and they're already helping them tunnel into more and more minerals than they could have ever dreamed of. Hooray, exploitation of the newborns. Once they get used to how ugly they are, they're not so bad. Spock says that that's very interesting since the Horta said the same thing about humans. Except for how much she liked Spock's ears and he didn't have the heart to tell her that he was the only one who had them. Koi's trying to like push the conversation towards this avenue and sort of make fun of Spock some more, but Spock's like just turning it around. It's like, yeah, you know, the Horde seems to like the ears, you know. Kirk says that that sounds like, you know, being vain and that Spock is becoming more and more human every day. And Spock says that he doesn't need to stand there and be insulted. Get on you, Spock. Head warp factor two. Yep, the end. <laughs> Let's get it's out of weird... here. weird... They, they never know how to end these shows. Nope. <laughs> it's like, well... All the stuff's kind of done. Let's just kind of end it, I guess. So this apparently was one of the episodes that they did research on. Mm -hmm. They The story is that they wanted a life form that would be completely foreign and alien. And they called a university and went, hey, if we didn't have carbon-based life, what would we have? And they went, oh, probably silicon. Like, cool. Yeah, the uh, uh, silicon is the, you know, pretty much the most likely alternative to carbon-based chemistry as far as life form possibilities go. 
though the uh, feasibility of it is still a little questionable because it's, uh, silicon's not as uh, reactive and uh, you know bondable to uh, various elements as uh, carbon is. It's sort of a second best quite uh, option, really. But from some of the reading I was doing, they've like found ways to create carbon silicate bio thingies, which I guess is not quite a silicon based organic molecule like it's not completely silicon based it's silicon and carbon but you know it's something well you know a lot more silicon in there than normal just sort of carbon based life so the biology in this episode they did some weird things with it but it's one of the first chances we get to talk about biology a little bit i know this is weird i i'm ill prepared holy crap (laughs) (laughs) well i was looking at the stuff this this reminded me of a few things like the message of this episode is very materialisty a bit yeah but it it was a better episode, so I was I was kind of having you know they didn't really espouse anything particularly horrifying. I th- but yeah, I, think, I, th- I think the you know the elements that are maybe the most um, um, unsettling, which I've tried to kind of poke fun at, are more pro- you know once again products of the time that's like okay this is how we think in and today, and so obviously the future we are just able to do the same sorts of things elsewhere on the planet. We just happen to run into an alien there, and that. And the, and the situation sort of unfolds here. So, you know, we're not really sort of doing any world building of like future economies or something like that, uh, you know, to sort of ex- explain. It's like, well, we need this this material because of the good of the Federation. It's no, it's, we're actually going to make a lot of money by selling it. So, yeah, they're going to be ungodly rich. Yep. <laughs> they also had this this weird kind of mixed message. They they were getting a little environmentalism-y there for a minute. Indeed. But they went immediately from, we have to kill it, it's in the way of our profit-making mining operation, to it's intelligent, but maybe we still have to kill it because it's in the way of our profit-making mining operation, but we'll feel bad about it. We have some slight hesitation here. (laughs) And then they went to, oh, actually, it's useful to us. So um, we'll keep it alive and everything will be great. Mm -hmm. This reminded me of this thing... uh, it's been going around for a bit, but it reminded me of this because I just heard it in a uh, NPR show very recently. Uh, kind of the this worth of nature idea that people are getting into right now as a way to kind of explain to corporations and governments why they should not destroy nature. Yeah, because you know if you're dealing with an entity that is fully based in a everything has a quantifiable value to it sort of mentality having some sort of resource to convince them using those terms is kind of useful so the idea is that you like calculate out how much revenue like a swamp or something generates based on a bunch of different factors like flood protection um you know natural resource generation tourism just this all this stuff and go like well you know this swamp is actually worth you know forty thousand dollars a year to your city and you know this company wants to come in and destroy it but they're only offering you like twenty thousand dollars so so it's not a really good deal here yeah and uh without the uh the swamp doing the thing here it might be a situation where you actually have excess costs later due to flood damage or you know, the the, 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 you know, the water plant down the river is going to have issues for this other reason, et cetera, et cetera. So the costs for, you know, might actually be even higher then. Yeah, which I understand, like you were saying, it's a way that you can explain the worth of things to people. But turning into this, like, cost value analysis gets into some troubling territory. It's, it's sort of, 
by, by sort of going that route, you sort of are having to get in that mentality yourself, and which is not necessarily a healthy thing, you know. Um, yeah. Because again, then it's like, okay, now I can evaluate anything in the world based on how much money it's worth. Or it's gonna and make this me. was the thing. Like, there, there's some stuff that just has inherent value because it exists. Mm -hmm. And natural stuff is some of that, and life forms are some of that, and people are that. And yeah. this gets into a mentality where stuff no longer has an inherent value because we have to quantify it. And the minute you can quantify it, you can go, well, maybe it's only actually worth this much. It, it really bothered me. This is not inherent in the discussion, but this particular show I was listening to went from calculating the cost of natural things into a story about calculating how much to uh how much money to give someone whose family member has died so they went straight from calculating the cost of natural things to how much is a human life worth and i do think that that's not that much of a logical leap to take once you start having to quantify the you know cost of everything in this way suddenly uh you're in a, you know you start pushing this even further and you're in a situation like well we could do this big project over here that will, you know, save people's lives and, you know, have all sorts of economic benefits for them. But their lives are only worth this much. And so we're going to instead do this project over here, which will maybe not save as many lives, but will uh, really benefit these other folks and make them even more worth uh, more than we would have just by keeping the people alive over there. You even get into this really troubling thing of like quantifying the value of emotions because one of the things that I always put into these, like, how much is someone's life worth things is, like, how much pain and suffering did it cause? Which means you added an extra little bit to pay for the amount of pain you went through. Indeed. So, yeah, it gets into some troubling things for me. And it it really, it says there is no inherent value to these things existing. Because Spock makes this argument. He says this is, you know, this not only is it like the last of its kind but it's scientifically valuable something to be learned from this year which is still it is of use to us and it's still the quantifications but it's a different kind of quantification that is rejected until it becomes monetarily useful yes so you know science is not apparently worth as much for the the, the far future humans well that's the main <laughs> thing they say directly we are not a zoological expedition. Well, too bad. You're in a zoological situation. <laughs> Which, like, send one. Yeah. <laughs> Find some experts. Send them over here. Get them Get them working. Come on, guys. <laughs> Heck, you got everything on, on the Enterprise as far as, like, experts. You got a historian, like, who specialized in 21st or 20th century. Well, maybe not anymore. Uh, you, know, you know, history. But, um... Uh, the you, you don't gotta like someone who's good with animals. This does this demonstrates how shaky they still were with their ideologies yes. at this point in the series, because you even have their intro still is to seek out new life and new civilizations. Yes, <laughs> I just keep getting reminded. There's some other next gen stuff that I kind of want to tie this into, but I keep getting reminded of the line from measure of a man where it says our mission is to seek out new life well there it is <laughs> it's right here it's standing right in front of us <laughs> now as, as far as a uh, uh, next generation connections i uh, this episode actually reminded me of um home solely uh, so, uh home soil sorry is that the terraforming 
I think or... so. They find a, the uh, inorganic sort of crystalline uh, critter, uh, and it's like sending out radiation and electricity and stuff. And they beam it aboard, and weird stuff happens. Yeah, which that one got me. I was thinking about that too. That one bothered me a little bit because it was still. It's only valuable because it's intelligent. Yeah, you know, as opposed to, well, this is a unique sort of life form. Maybe we should, like, let it be and let it keep its own planet. Or any kind of life form. Like, having it be, like, a an unknown type of life form that they couldn't detect explains why they didn't detect it before. Indeed. But with the, with the ideology and values they're espousing on these shows, it should be this kind of thing of, like, we will terraform planets but only completely dead planets. So, you know, we found a microbe, so we're not going to interfere with the natural evolution of this planet. Well, we could check, see if it's a microbe that, like, lives elsewhere, then we'll be okay with it, because maybe we contaminated this planet. But if it's something that's natural to here, yeah, maybe we should let it do its thing. They have that whole thing of, like, don't interfere with the natural course of development on planets. Well, if you're terraforming a planet that already has life on it, you, you could do in that. Which gets into that thing of like, you know, that's an interesting discussion to be had of at what point do you not interfere? Because, you know, the natural evolution of this planet is going to take more time than humans could possibly exist. Indeed. You know, heck, you, you know, you might be in a position like, well, we could accelerate it somehow or, you know, sort of doing, you know, you know, not quite a full uplift sort of situation, but something sort of akin to that to sort of encourage it to you know you know you know to get to a much more advanced and plentiful sort of situation where it is very obvious to you know, humans like oh there is life here and we should probably let it be uh to in some ways dissuade future generations from ever trying to colonize there <laughs> now i for, i'm forgetting the the name of the next gen episode uh that i was thinking of also but they have an episode where they find a space born creature and it attacks the ship and they try to fend it off and wind up accidentally killing it Uh and then discover that it was about to give birth to another one of these giant space creatures oh i I think i'm uh, remembering a little bit with that episode i don't remember the name of it though yeah and and that one was we found this new life form we we like didn't want to kill it we act we were trying to drive it away from the ship and accidentally killed it and we feel bad and then it's like, well, now we have to not only inconvenience ourselves, but actually put the entire ship in danger to try to save this one that is left because it's a new type of life form. And we, we want to, you know, examine new types of life forms. And, you know, we also feel bad about killing small. So, like, it's, it's this complete thing of just this exists for the sake of existing. It's not intelligent. It's not useful. It is, in fact, detrimental to them. Mm-hmm. but they want to keep it alive and and study it because it's a life form and they find in, inherent value in life forms. Indeed. So we're going to uh, go out of our way and make the extra effort to try to not, you know, you know, not not just study it or to understand it but to let it exist. Life existing is inherently valuable for its own sake. I'll I'll support that position. One of the other things in here, they actually stumbled into some accurate biology. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanted to make this creature super, super peaceful, I guess, to be like, oh, you know, we're the bad ones because it's super peaceful. But if it's the only thing that actually lives on this planet, it would be like one of those island species that's never encountered a predator. It's like, oh, um, 
there's some weird creatures here, I, I think, but yeah, whatever. Like, oh no, they're killing our young. <laughs> What's going on? There's plenty of stories from both early scientific expeditions and some stuff now still where like if humans go to an isolated island that didn't have natural predators on it, the animals there like don't care if people are around because they, you know, they've never encountered a natural predator before. They aren't afraid of animals. A big something coming at me. It's a big something that's picking me up. This is weird. Oh no, I'm being put in a box. Um, um, hello, fellow dodos. How are you doing today? There's actually kind of a story from the um, Galapagos Islands when Darwin was doing his his expeditions. Yeah. Of there's there's a story of him pushing a hawk out of a tree with the end of his rifle. Like the hawk was just sitting there, and he like pokes it, and the hawk is just has has no idea what's going on it says what's that and he just pokes it until it falls out of the tree i guess i'm falling now huh <laughs> and you see these things with like modern biologists go to these weird little islands and the birds just come out and sit on them and go what's this so this <laughs> is an interesting thing they they imply it to be some kind of moralistic thing like the horda never wanted to hurt anything but no the horda did not evolve in a situation where it can hurt there were other things to hurt it was kind of isolated there's no you know creatures above or below it as far as the food chain goes so it's just gonna be using its acid thing here to make tunnels then i mean we think because it must eat something well I, I thought it sort of implied that like eats something in the rocks it is but this has never made sense to me yeah because eventually you'd run out of rock well, that, but they all—they always do this with silicon life forms. They say, like, we have a silicon life form, and because it's made of silicon, and that's rocks, it eats rocks. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the same thing as saying, because we're based on carbon, we eat charcoal. Don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not a chemist. I'm certainly not a biochemist. Right. Uh you know, the body needs more than just sort of these basic raw materials. Uh, yeah, you know, I know. would imagine that an animal that needs to generate energy would do it in a similar way. It would it would ingest something and oxidize it to create a you know heat reaction, an oxidation reduction exo, uh, endothermic reaction that it would then use to generate energy. So, so maybe there's like some sort of microbes in the rock that are like slowly drift down, you know, burrow the way in from the surface where they collect sunlight to build their energy or something. But they don't really go into much detail about anything beyond sort of this is the basics of it. Mm, it could possibly be a filter feeder. Like it just filters stuff out of the rocks. I kind of had this idea that maybe the reason that it's this place is so abundant with with natural resources that are useful to humans is it this thing kind of burrows through the rocks and can't use these like these heavy elements so those are just the leftover well i was actually thinking uh that the leftovers uh you know uh, were not things it was not eating but actually the corpses of the dead horde ah so like the court are made of rare heavy metals yep <laughs> Well, the, the uh, you know, the, 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 the silicon is, you know, going to be, you know, abundant no matter what. But, uh, you know, like it's internal organs or something like that, like they're high in uranium for some reason. I'm not. Mm. <laughs> but just all speculation for my part. Yeah. This, they also had an interesting thing with the this thing where it all the members of the species die off every now and again. So it sort of, well, it sort of implies that there, is a, that there is a resource limitation that at a certain point the feeding grounds for the you know you know the, the creatures 
uh, become you know sparse, and so they just run out of food, or right, you know, are they're biologically you know realizing they're going to run out of food, and so they just start shutting down their bodies, and you know most of them die off. In biology, this is called an eruption. Uh, there's a there's a mass amount of food, and the an- whatever animal species this is, you know, eats a lot of it, has this massive population explosion, uses up a bunch of the food, then has a massive population crash. And uh, let's see, snowy owls do this based on um, I think lemming populations. Uh, there's a pretty interesting example of this not working out very well for an animal. It's called a Sloan's urania which is a type of moth that was native to jamaica and they went through this cycle but one year uh probably because of humans uh making them lose some of their habitat they died off too much for the food resources to bring back and went extinct just from this natural cycle so they uh, crashed a little too far yeah and Probably because of a human intrusion that removed some of the natural resources in the area. But yeah, they just naturally died off and they usually did this and then had the food explosion and they would come back. But this time they didn't and they are now gone, which I guess is kind of what's happening in the episode. They had the natural die off and then humans came in and messed it up. Mm -hmm. And so the uh, next generation of Horde is going to be reduced by uh, by a large fraction, uh, apparently, uh, potentially the thousands uh so you know the horda better hope that their food source whatever it may be is not also being destroyed by the humans for the next round but apparently this happens every like fifty thousand years or something so the humans are going to be long gone the humans are going to be long gone as well as all the resources they wanted to extract from here yeah what is it with science fiction and these unbelievably massive time scales um the universe is very old and they need to fill things up in the time i don't know <laughs> yeah every t- every freaking time they have another life form it can't be like oh you know every hundred years or 50 years or something that makes the remotest amount of sense it's every 50 million years i i guess you know as i mentioned earlier i've been watching a lot of stargate uh yeah they, they do a little bit of that in that uh, in stargate as well where it's like, okay, here's some ancient civilization that predates everything we've run into so far, and it has something really weird going on, and oh, it's like 10 million years old, and it's like, okay, what's the point of that? Also, yeah. when, when one of the newer people that are around and you know we're dealing with have come here and messed with things here in the meantime or something? I guess not. Space is big. Yeah. But, but there's a Stargate that goes right there. <laughs> The only reason that I liked that in Stargate is because they do the the cyclical evolution thing where like life evolved on Earth and then all wiped out and then lost all traces of it and then re-evolved. I I do actually like that. Uh, And it sort of gives a a structured uh, time frame to it. But there are a couple episodes in uh, SG-1 where uh, I'm thinking particularly of the uh, one where they like this sort of a time capsule of biology and science that they bring into the sgc and it like you know freaks out and doesn't want to go back to the stargate because it's like sending all these little microbes they're gonna like terraform the planet or something like that and it's like they, they pick it up on this planet that's completely devoid of like even oxygen uh that's been like that for like millions of years or something like that yeah that was a weird one i thought yeah. they were gonna <laughs> go with some kind of gray goo thing there 
Yeah, same here. But it's more of a, a less silicon base and more carbon. Yeah, the first couple seasons of Stargate SG-1 are not that good. They do some important world building there, but yeah, there's some some real like, what, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of other things in here, I kind of had this cringe thing when i was looking up the asbestos comment that they made <laughs> do tell <laughs> so it's just this thing that every now and then star trek kind of just reveals how mainstream and establishment it is and how much it's just espousing the beliefs that the government wanted people to have oh yeah and you know asbestos is good it's gonna keep your house from burning down so put it everywhere guys yeah which I, I just had to look this up because I wasn't completely sure of the timeline, but they started noticing a health link between humans and asbestos in the 20s. And uh, sort of ignored it for a while. Yeah, nothing was actually done about it until like the mid 80s. So it takes a yeah. while for people to be convinced and the people that are benefiting the most from it to finally being told like, no, you're actually hurting people. Stop it. Like, I know that this is something that happens all the time, even in today's media. But when you're watching something that's this old, this is like a full generation older mm -hmm. than we are. Yes. It's, it's like the propaganda is, you know, so different that it just jumps out at you. It's like, well, that was a weird thing to mention. What, what What's that about? Yeah. Asbestos. It keeps you safe from phasers. <laughs> phasers are like fire so it, it's yeah it's obviously the same thing right yeah i'm also just gonna you know touch it and put it next to my face yeah you know just put, rub it on your face more guys come on the, the start licking it and, and breathing it in and chewing it and yeah <laughs> be great it's like i know this is still happening but it's always just slightly disturbing to part of you and it's like oh yeah right this kind of like stuff of the time that the government wants you to believe so corporations can make money is just in here. Yep. <laughs> you know, everyone is already on board with the program, so it just sort of bleeds in, you know? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if next time they have a whole speech about how smoking calms your nerves. <laughs> so do you want to talk about colony management for a few minutes? Sure. All right, so obviously this is an important colony, right? Because they have the special mineral I can't pronounce. But they're, uh, <laughs> it's like, they're, they're really, really eager to get out of this place. Yes. And there's also all sorts of other things like platinum and uranium and gold and just sort of a plentiful, rich flow of all sorts of materials that obviously they've been uh, uh, harvesting for years and years at this point because, you know, they got so many levels down to, uh, you know, digging they've already done. So everything's super great and they should already have a pretty good financial base given we are still uh, operating in the Star Trek capitalism universe to, uh, you know, to be able to, you know, do things like basic colony maintenance and to have backup parts and to upgrade their systems. But they don't seem to be doing that. that no, weird? they have like no spares. They're <laughs> using a, they're using a, a, some sort of like, I don't know, fusion generator. And, uh, uh, I, I, I don't remember if they said it was fusion exact, exactly, but it almost felt like a fusion reactor, honestly, given that it's like, yeah, this thing will uh, heat up and explode at some point with, you know, if we don't have this pump sort of doing things with it. So they're using a nuclear reactor yeah. to power this colony, and they don't have even the basic parts to keep the maintenance going. Yeah, this is what we call a bad idea. Also, this thing doesn't have a built-in failsafe yeah, it's like oh yeah you know most modern day like in reality nuclear reactors uh have various systems in there that 
you, you know, if something starts going wrong, wrong are meant to automatically activate to prevent everything from going totally awful. And, uh, you know, some of them include like collapsing a giant pile of metal over the uranium. It's like, yeah. well, if it's going to melt down, then we need to contain the radiation. And we're just going to do that by piling a bunch of crap on top of it. There's and, also no, no escape shuttles, shelters. Yeah. <laughs> like if this one reactor goes down, they all die. Yeah. So this seems like. A bit of poor colony management, honestly, which, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, giving us again, once again, given the resources that they have really should not be, you know, much of a problem. And, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the episodes obviously focused on other things, you know, uh, having even like a one line of, you know, you should really like have replacement parts for something this important, guys. They really do this like dangerous exploration colony thing, especially when they get to the mining. Because we had this in Mud's Women, yep. where they go to the mining planet that's, like, unlivable. <laughs> Just a terrible place to be. <laughs> I guess they're still going for that, like, space frontier thing. Where, you know, it's like, well, if we lose a wagon wheel, like, we're... We, we barely have enough resources. Yeah. I did think, in, like, it, you kind of reminded me, it was it was absurd to me that they did not talk about the creature being intelligent at this point. Mm-hmm. because when they said they had a line of like why would it take the reactor out now yeah it's like oh it knows there's a ship here now yeah it's like oh uh, that that would make a logical sense spock you should mention these things yeah it's like oh it waited until we got here like it it wants to drive the colonists off the planet and now it knows there's a ship not only is this thing intelligent but it knows about spaceships Yes, it's intelligent to understand that there is something beyond this, its world here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, what more, it also took the part as opposed to just melted it, which seems a little out of character for its behavior so far. Yeah, well, it's 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 MacGuffin instinct. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta get the magic doohickey to, you know, you know, get you know put away somewhere. <laughs> Otherwise, they'd have no reason to do any. Otherwise, they'd just leave. Like, yeah, it's like you know, well, this is destroyed. There's no way to fix it. We have to go. Well, it could be a a thing where, you know, an alternative take on the episode is it did melt the part. Just like, well, I just want these people never to come back because they're obviously dangerous and they're killing my my, my eggs here. Um, and then the, 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 and they could have the whole plot to revolve around them very quickly realizing it's intelligent and trying to communicate with the, uh, with the Horda that, oh, this is this missing, this destroyed part is also going to hurt you because it's going to do all these nasty things to your... You know, your environment, destroying more of your eggs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then having and then having to work with the horde to, to like like build a solution or to disable the reactor in a certain way or something, you know, like that. But uh you know, that's that'd be a whole lot different episode. But I feel like that's how next gen would have handled this one. Yes. <laughs> that's more of a next generation script. So <laughs> Or they would have come down with a team of biologists and go like, Oh my god, silicon life, look at that. And we should like just be cool with this all all the time here and like We'll, you know, you know, we'll make friends. We'll, we'll share experiences, and they'll, we'll teach them about us. They'll learn about, yeah, you know, we'll learn about them. And it'll be great. Yeah. There's also a weird one, just, uh, just uh, apropos of nothing, but this apparently is another mission that Kirk never bothered to log. Because yeah. <laughs> there's, there's one or two episodes of Next Gen where they're like, "Hey, a silicon-based life form. We've never seen those before." Well, maybe they're meaning that they themselves have never seen it before. <laughs> I guess, but they're always so surprised. It's like, you've known about silicon-based life for a hundred years. Yeah, you know, it should not be a surprise, guys. Come on. Like, even according to this episode, you have worked alongside it. Yes. 
well, maybe this whole planet uh, got classified and for some reason because the, I don't know, the Horde started working with the Klingons or something like that. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> we didn't really talk about it much beyond the nature thing, but making them intelligent messes up what they're going for with the we can all get along and live together mm-hmm. because it makes it just unbelievably colonialist. Yep. That's the that was the, the, the third big thing I was going to talk about. So mm-hmm. let, let, let's just talk a little about colonialism a little bit. Yeah, they they kind of have this thing. We came here. There's this myth. There's the colonialist myth of amicable cooperation. Yeah, well, you know, it's go fine. There and, uh, you know, they're they're going to do all this this work for us, and we'll uh, teach them about our culture and civilize these natives here, and then everything will be swell, won't it? We'll yeah, our- everyone's going to be happy, and we'll just work together, and it's fine. It's fine that we came here and established ourselves on their land because everyone's cooperating and gets along great. It's not going to be any suffering or exploitation or any of that business because everything who is you know here and working for us, uh, you know, with our overseers with their guns over there watching uh there everyone's doing it in a very happy fashion a very orderly fashion a very volunteery sort of fashion right and there was the thing that you talked about where they don't ever actually make a deal yeah there's no contract <laughs> like even our actual colonialists made treaties they just didn't abide by them they're either crap treaties or they just ignored them <laughs> yeah this was we're not going to kill you hooray yeah <laughs> Y'all gonna do a lot of work for us and help us gain uh, resources and things that we need, and in exchange, we will have not killed any more of you than we already did. So y- your payment is not death. Yeah, yeah. And this is where it gets weird because it's implied that like the Horta will understand because it's logical and just wants to be helpful. I think it's more logical in that it it knows that it doesn't really have a choice in the matter. But this this idea that the native population just wants to be helpful and nice to the new colonialist empire is just yeah. that's used been used to justify so much horrible stuff. Yeah, hello atrocities. How are you doing today? So they got far enough at this point to something that is native to a planet that we colonized maybe does not merit certain immediate death but it still does not have any particular rights of sovereignty you know it's it's gonna work for us and give us all the resources that we're going to take away from this place and uh leave it eventually with its empty tunnels yeah and they don't even they don't even tell us what it needs yeah (laughs) to survive or live once they've strip mined this planet to its core is this thing still going to be able to live here Eh, probably not but you know it is using the materials and land in a way that is non-industrial and therefore unimportant. It is of less concern for our high-minded Federation people here. So going back to my, my fan theory about the Horde like uh, collaborating with the Klingons or something like that, maybe they're trying to overthrow the Federation overseers. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good one. <laughs> I'm, I'm reminded of this thing. I was watching a a Philosophy Tube video, which is a really fun channel you should check out. Yeah. Uh, and he had this video about colonialism um, justifying it in this kind of way, and it's that that philosophy of like this thing is doing something different 
and therefore doesn't really exist. It's a very like, odd sort of take, but if you want to have an excuse for uh, you know exploitation, I guess that works, question mark? It's the same kind of thing that we had in like the American colonialist era where you know the the native people are not using the land they're just living on it they're not using it because we have an industrialized definition of using so the fact that they are doing something different with it means they're doing nothing with it. they are actually using it it's how they like survive and how they eat and where they live and you know all that sort of stuff that everyone else is also doing in this american land place no. just they're just doing it in a different fashion <laughs> they aren't they aren't dominioning the land yeah. like this this thing it's referenced in a later much later star trek episode this like dominion overall things idea oh dominion uh, theology yeah dominion theology which a part of that is like everything in existence was created specifically for humans to use and for no other reason and it's also often sort of pared down to uh, all things in creation have been made for christian white people to use specifically well yeah i mean you have to understand that the definition of what counts as human changes very drastically depending on what group of people you're dealing with indeed though they got to they got to have their native intelligent species here but mm-hmm. because it's non-humanoid you don't have to worry about any of this stuff it's okay that we are basically exploiting it for labor because it enjoys it and that sounds disturbingly familiar a little bit yeah so uh, we're gonna have our exploitation colonialism here don't mind us uh. yeah that was like just a flat out defense of slavery a little bit, yeah. Was like the people that we have enslaved and are working for us are, you know, genetically predisposed to enjoy manual labor and working for people and being dominated. It's not our fault that they, this is their natural state of existing. Of course, that's all bullshit, but you know. Yes. <laughs> but when you have this alien that you get to fully define how this alien functions because you made it up. Of course, it is naturally subservient. Yeah, it's something completely new, so we can define all the rules as we like, and it's it's not going to be as as problematic, but it's still pretty problematic. Well, the thing is, you can talk all the time about like you know, this is only showing the human perspective of the alien, and it probably works different, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But none of that stuff is in the text of the episode. Yes, <laughs> in the text of the episode, they define this new entity that they invented as being naturally subservient and willing to work for humans. It's kind of uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. We got there. Yep, we, we have achieved there. racism. <laughs> In an episode that's overall pretty good, we still got yep. racism. You cannot you cannot make a story from our culture without it getting to racism because our culture is inherently built on a racial discrimination of people. And you know, I guess the best you could do is to try to build a story so that it you know, attempts to use that real you know, that, that that element of the culture as a means to fight against that element of the culture sort of you know you know you know, make it you know you know sort of the, the, you know the 
uh, racial allegory is sort of the, the first level sort of step there, but even sort of, you know, subtext sort of stuff here, like, you know, this, there's a situation going on here, but if you really think about it, yeah, this is even more awful than you think, you know, it seems like, and that's why people are, you know, are being portrayed in a certain way, sort of, sort of fashion here. Yeah, but, you know, a white dude in the 60s is not going to write that. Uh, do you want me to make it worse real quick? Sure. So how many women are there in this episode? Yeah, zero. <laughs> Which makes it the least sexist episode we've seen so far. <laughs> in a very unfortunate sort of fashion, I guess. In the context of this show, women not existing is the only way that we are not directly misogynist to women in explicit terms oh man we are just being misogynist in the fact that we have erased them from existence or concern well at least it's not obviously being terrible then. <laughs> yeah we're just you know pretending they don't exist instead of directly attacking them so we've had it, an improvement so there no no uh, it's, it's, it, i guess we could argue that they're taking a break so they can maybe rethink about things. Yeah, did they all take shore leave on the woman-run planet that reprogrammed the computer in Space Seed? Come on, writers. You, you can go hang out there and you can learn some things, but great. And <laughs> hopefully not the things that you were writing in that episode. Yeah, that you'd, you'd hope so, but, you know. <laughs> they're, not going to, uh, they're not going to learn anything. This is Star Trek. Learning things is for a different Star Trek series. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. We haven't gotten to learning yet, which is an interesting one. I was thinking about this more in the last episode, and we kind of touched on the modernism versus postmodernism ideas. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting in this kind of thing that the, one of the main dictates of postmodernism is to examine preconceived notions yes it's like don't trust anything uh modernism was all about we know everything and we're just gonna tell you about it. here is your plate of knowledge and now you need to digest it and build everything that you know from it and well postmodern is like well we got this plate over here but you should probably make sure it's something you want to actually eat which might explain why the food improved drastically from the 60s Hooray. <laughs> we no longer put things in jello. Yeah, but everybody loves jello. <laughs> yeah, but do you want to put coleslaw in jello? No, I don't like coleslaw. That was an actual thing. recipe. I was helping somebody format a co like a family cookbook a few years ago and they had all these really really old recipes in it. It was just like mayonnaise put on cream cheese in jello with random non-cooked vegetables sprinkled on it. What? <laughs> yeah. What kind of madness is this? I think that was called a white pizza. What? <laughs> I think I'll pass. I'm usually a fan of pizza, but I think I'll pass this time. <laughs> uh, if we're making fun of the food, I feel like we've probably run out of substantive things. All right. So maybe we should get get some sort of, I don't know, a game show award system here. Yeah. There might be something that we call the galaxy's favorite game show. Oh, Izix, I understand that you have some awards for our wonderful contestants this episode. Oh, you're right there, Gepwin. I got three magical awards to give out today. I did think about giving a few more, but I think three's enough today. 
So our first war is the Gur I Say Gur Award, which goes to the Horta Mama for uh, having a sort of cool sound effect that's like gravelly, ruddy sort of stuff going on whenever it's about to kill somebody. What does it win, Captain? The Horta wins a Foley Award. Just it was really good sound effects, and sound effects guys do not get enough credit. Heck yeah, I'll support that. You know, we're going to get uh, you know, more sound effects from them in the future, hopefully, and uh, hopefully they're just as awesome. Our second award is the No Hard Feelings Award, which goes to Vandenberg for his being totally cool with the alien killing 50 people. And then, you know, because he's going to make a lot of money for it. What does he win, Gipwin? Vandenberg wins what is the value of a human life. It's a lot of money, apparently. Apparently. Apparently well, a lot less money than he's going to make from all of this. Hmm. Anywho, the third award today is I'm a bricklayer, not a doctor award, which goes to McCoy for healing the Horda with a trowel and concrete mix. What does he win, Gepwin? McCoy wins a massive hike to his malpractice insurance because you don't just shove random things in wounds. Well, I think his malpractice insurance might be a little unaffordable pretty soon, given everything we've seen so far. Unless the Horde decides to not sue, which I think will be well within its rights to. We assume, though we didn't give it any human rights in this episode, so why start now? Hmm, that is true. Fortunately, the Horde didn't get that award. Hmm. Oh, that was all our awards for today. So, thank you for joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Next week, it's more racist, possibly. Oh, dear. I like it in a very obvious fashion, too. Yeah. Next week, we are looking at an episode that I have not heard of directly called Errand of Mercy. Are we going to war against East Asia now? Yeah. Yeah. We have (laughs) the first appearance of... The Klingons. Yes, the Klingons. You have no honor, sir. Uh, yes. Yeah. So we've had the uh, Romulan Empire, mm-hmm. who is a direct uh, allegory for Russia. Yes. During this time period. And oh. now we are going to have the Klingon Empire, which is a bunch of dumb Asian stereotypes rolled up in something that looks disturbingly like blackface. A little bit, yeah. It's it's sort of, well, we got our, our main communist rival uh, represented. Let's go for uh, the People's Republic of China now. And uh, Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Except it's in space, so it's something different. Yes. It's definitely not racist because it's in space. This is going to be the first appearance of our Klingon uh, core, though, who shows up in Deep Space Nine later. Core. So, you know, they keep their Klingons around. Yeah. Uh, Klingons, you know, they, they live a long, long time here. and uh, Unless they get, you know, murderated by each other, but, you know. Also, it's going to be another episode written by Gene L. Kuhn, so maybe it will be better? Yeah, let's Fingers crossed here, so... Coon, you're doing us uh, pretty good here, uh, Gene. You know, uh, you know, you know, save the day, please. Yeah, I hope so. I've I've not seen very much of the Klingon 
stuff in the original series. I think my entire exposure to original series Klingons is the movies and Trouble with Tribbles. About the same, actually. <laughs> I think I may have seen a, a part of another episode at some point, but I have no idea what the context was. Yeah. Um, and maybe something from the animated series. <laughs> yes. every Everything that I know about Klingons comes from Next Generation, where they, I think, expanded the Klingon mythos massively. Yes. <laughs> Made it much more interesting and a lot less sort of a direct allegory that's uncomfortable. Yeah. Well... You can see just how uncomfortable this episode makes two white dudes next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, get your teepee ready as we have Klingons. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Izix, on youtube.com slash and Twitter at IzixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principal, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, Please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists.